tradition. What is it that you love the most? Perhaps it's a favorite meal, a favorite vacation spot. Um, maybe perhaps it's a favorite family ritual like a movie night or ice cream on Sunday nights in the summer. Um, perhaps it's fishing. It's a, it's a favorite pastime like a favorite sport, a, a tradition that happens in your family every year. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a family feast or festivities or, or it's a family meal at Christmas time. Tradition. We're surrounded by pr- tradition. Uh, tradition isn't foreign to any, probably any society. We do things habitually and then they become traditions. Favorite meals, favorite recipes, long-held traditions in our family, maybe that go back generations and we continue to do them. Have you ever stopped to think, you know, why, does, why do we do this tradition? Why, why do we have this, this favorite meal or this favorite activity? Why do we do these things? No, tradition isn't wrong and there's nothing wrong with tradition. Tradition is actually good. There, there's good things about tradition. There's, there's positive things about passing on from generation to generation uh, recipes or, or ways of living or, or just, just gatherings that we have. Nothing wrong with these things. But have you ever thought how even in church we're more dictated by tradition than we are the Word of God? Never thought about our traditions as a congregation, perhaps our traditions as Baptists, the things that we hold dearly to our own lives as a congregation. Do we ever, do we ever kind of stop and think, well, where did this start? And why are we doing this? And what does God's word have to say about that? That's what we're going to think about this morning tradition, religion. Religiosity, that is just doing things blindly without considering their effects. We're going to be in Mark's gospel this morning, so if you will, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, page, if you have a black pew Bible, not a red one, but a black one, it is page 842. Those that have the red ones, you'll just have to find out. I don't know. I do not know. 1071, says the large print people. (laughs) Uh, 1071 or 842, Mark chapter 7. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been traveling really for the last six months uh, through the gospel of Mark. Uh, And the gospel of Mark is is really trying to, to capture in our lives, in our hearts, who is Jesus. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be the Son of God? Who is he? Is he the Son of God? Is he the one and true Messiah? I think Mark answers yes. Then what does it look like to follow him? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, To be, if you will, uh, to use a Bible word, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. What does that mean and look like? Well, Mark answers that question. And over the next few weeks, we're going to encounter more clearly and more precisely how who Jesus is informs who we are and how we follow him. 
In Mark 7, we are going to encounter tradition and religion. But this is nothing new for what we're going to see. In fact, Jesus has already been confronted by the Pharisees, uh, who are really the religious elite of the day. They are the conservatives. They're the ones who are the Bible believers. They're the ones who are the fundamentalists. Probably not much different than you and I in our view of the Bible. That is, we believe the Bible is true. And we want to honor and glorify God by living a lives of holiness. If you were to sit in on maybe what the Pharisees were teaching, you would be amening probably most of what they're saying. Yes. Preach it, Pharisee. Yes. I need that. Yes, I, I love that. I believe the Bible. It's true. And we need to get back to the Bible. We need to be Bible people, right? That's what the Pharisees were. And so in no way do I want to, you to hear that the Pharisees were some liberal, non-Bible believing, you know, they didn't really care about worship of God. Oh, no, 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 no. They immensely cared about worship of God. The problem, though, as we'll see in a moment, is that the Pharisees got off the road. Fundamentally, they began to worship themselves rather than God. And that is a word, I think, for conservatives, fundamentalists like ourselves, claim to be one. That we can often worship ourselves and our traditions rather than the God of the Bible. Central to this passage is the word of man versus the word of God. Which one has greater authority and weight? That's what this passage is central, what it's about. Let's read it together. Hear the word of the Lord in Mark 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they washed. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Startling and convicting word from our Lord. Man's word versus God's word. Man's word versus God's word. In a de decisive and definitive way, the Son of Man comes in to this situation and uh, confronted by the religious leaders of his day. 
and gives an authoritative word about God's word being superior to man's word. Central to religion is an understanding of how to have a relationship with God. All world religions seek in some form or fashion to have a relationship with the divine, whether it be divine spirits, plural, a divine world. So plants and trees and animals have spirits, and so trying to have a relationship with those divine spirits. Having a relationship with some deity, some, some being in the universe, trying to, trying to have a relationship. So religion seeks to answer that question of how to have a relationship with God or divine. And so Christianity would fall within, the, within that larger bracket of what is defined as religion. But religiosity is taking religion and making it a god. It's taking and elevating tradition to the place of the divine. And so what Jesus is dealing with here is Jesus isn't confronting other world religions. He does that in other places. And he shows how all world religions ultimately fail. Because all world religions, whether it be Hinduism, Islam, Judaism of today ultimately try to seek the divine through human efforts. Only Christianity, only Christianity of the Bible, evangelical understanding of the Bible, presents a relationship with the divine, not by human effort, but solely by grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. So uh, the discussion today isn't about how Christianity is a superior religion to other religions, but how you and I in our Christian world, we elevate tradition and religiosity to the divine, where we worship ourselves rather than God. And so in this passage, we see three warnings, three warnings against false religion. How we can take something that God has designed as good and glorious and turn it into self-worship, self-glorification. First warning, the dangerous allure of false religion. The dangerous allure of false religion. That's the first warning we see in this passage, is that false religion, religiosity, traditionalism, has a dangerous allure. It's attractive. It's attractive because it it gives us something to do. Look at what happens. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So, the Pharisees come down, the hitmen from Jerusalem come down, and they want to confront Jesus and his disciples. We've already seen them doing this once in chapter 3. Uh, so this isn't the religious leaders there in Capernaum where Jesus is currently doing his ministry. No, these are the religious elite. These are the leaders coming down from Jerusalem. These are the ones sent by the, the high priest, the hitmen, if you will, to go down and deal with this guy, Jesus. And they go down and and the Pharisees begin to see and notice that, hey, 
why don't his disciples obey our traditions? So what the disciples were doing is they were eating. That's all they were doing. But they weren't eating the right way. Basically what happens is these Pharisees are following their traditions that have been handed down from them. In the rabbinical period, that is the period from the close of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, so in about 500, you know, the last 500 years of, of, the, of B.C., so, so, you know, give or take, you know, a few years in there, uh, rabbinical teaching, that is, rabbis began to teach, and, and, and really, again, I want to stress that all that they were doing was an attempt to have good godly worship. They were trying to help people hedge their bets against making God mad. They were trying to help people put fences in their lives to prevent them from sinning. And so in the Mishnah, which is, a, which is the rabbinical teaching, uh, it teaches that, that, that there's certain rules you, that make you unclean, certain things. So, so where does all this come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. In Leviticus, God's very clear about what's unclean, what things you shouldn't touch, like dead bodies and certain kind of food and certain people and so on and so forth. Well, the rabbis, they got, they sat around and they began to say, you know what, here's what we need to do. We need to put sort of barriers in people's lives like don't go to a cemetery. Why? So you don't get touch dead people, right? I mean, it's natural, right? I mean, that makes sense. Like, okay, if I can't, if I'm not supposed to touch dead people, then don't go where dead people are, right? This seems kind of natural, right? Well, what happened was is they began to kind of pad that and pad that and get that bigger and bigger. So their concern was about cleanliness or holiness. That was their concern. But they took it to a way, a radical way. So one of their traditions, and what, what we see confronted in this passage, is the tradition of hand washing. Not so much that hands had to be washed. Now, I just want to be clear. This has nothing to do with hygiene. This wasn't about you know, being, being clean, like hygienically clean. Okay, that, that's not the purpose of these laws. Okay? So what they did, and we don't really know exactly what they did. Some of your Bibles might have in their translation, in verse 3, it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly. There's that word properly. Well, that's not really in the, the original text. It's, it, the word is wash their hands with their fists. Fist, like, and you, some of your translations might try to, try to pull that out. Basically, there was some ritual that they did, whether it be dipping their whole arms. and It was this huge ritual that they had. In, in essence, Jesus' disciples weren't following the rules. Not the rules of God's word, but the rules of tradition. The tradition of the elders, the word of the Mishnah, was being subjugated by Jesus himself and his followers. They weren't doing things the way they should be doing things. They weren't doing things the way, well, frankly, the way things have always been done. And so, they're upset. And it seems alluring to us. Friends, I want you to know and hear this morning, it is alluring to just do things. To find security in activity. In religious activity. Whether it be hand washing, whether it be church attendance, whether it be praying or reading your Bible, merely out of some religious obligation to appease God. 
As if what God is really concerned about is your personal effort in your life to be holy. Friend, that is not what Christianity teaches. In, in fact, that's what Protestants have been fighting against for 500 years, against a church that would teach that all you have to do is do traditions and religiosity rather than submitting to the Word of God. We're going to confront that in a moment in a more serious way. Religion focuses on external things rather than internal things. There, we'll see next week, but Jesus is, is pushing against a, a false idea that all we have to do is clean the outside of our bodies and then everything's cool. We clean up our language, we clean up our, our, our music, we clean up you know, the, the, the things we're putting in, we clean up all these external things, well then we're good. All we have to do is be good people on the outside. Now, Jesus is saying, no, the, the, the problem goes much deeper than, than, than the way your behavior manifests itself. Jesus says it's the heart. Out of the heart of man comes evil. Can't clean the inside. So fundamentally, the problem with religion is it's trying to fix external things. It's behavior modification. And it's wicked. Because all you do is clean yourself up for hell. That's all you're doing. When what you really need is a new heart. A new life. This is what the Bible calls the new birth or regeneration, where, where we are dead. As we heard in the scripture reading today, that you are dead in Christ. You died. When you believed in Christ, when you trusted in Christ, the Spirit killed you. And he gave you a new life. Because of anything you did, last time I checked, People aren't doing heart transplants on themselves, right? What the Bible says we need is a new heart. This is why we sing together that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white. We were stained. We couldn't get it out. Bleach wouldn't fix it. We scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. Nothing would clean us up. God comes along by his spirit and gives us a new heart. What we need is Christ. You don't need religious activity this morning. Religious activity will not save you. Praying and, and, and confession and, and, and church attendance and giving, none of that saves you. None of that. Only. Christ can save you. So there's this dangerous allure that we can fix external things when internally we need a new life. Secondly, the second warning we see is that the veiled uselessness of religion. The veiled uselessness of religion. Look at what Jesus says to them in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of, of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, for it is written, or it has been written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says, you're hypocrites. The word that he uses there, he borrows from, from acting, from the theater. You're just actors. You're just fakes. It's just a show. Hypocrisy is just a show. And Jesus says it's useless. You, 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 with your lips, you say these things about God's glory and about holiness and about wonderful God is, but inwardly, your heart isn't in it. Your heart is, is broken. Again, it demonstrates to us that it's utterly useless to try to fix external things when internally that's what we need. It's like an absentee father who goes running around and saying he loves his family. But he's not there to love his family. His lips and his heart aren't on the same page. He may say he loves his family, but, but clearly by his heart he doesn't love his family. There's a warning for us here. We can come in here week in and week out and think that we're worshiping a holy and triune God. But all we're doing is vain things that are meaningless and pointless and useless. It's frightening. It's scary. That you and I can be trapped in that same mode in our lives. Where we just give lip service to God. God, I love you, I worship you, praise you. And you know where it's revealed the most? It's through passive, non-thinking activity. Doing things because you've always done it that way. When we get in a position where we just do things automatically without thinking about how God's word is informing both our public and our private worship, we get in a scary, scary place. There's nothing wrong with tradition so long as it's been informed by God's word. What Jesus is confronting here is religious activity that finds its information or its direction from the word of men and not the word of God. That's what he says, what Isaiah prophesies in verse 7. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines. Teaching, teaching the commandments of men. Teaching as teachings. There's elevating of God's, or excuse me, of man's word over God's word. And saying that, that this, is, this is equal. Why do we do what we do? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why do we sing songs? Why do we come in here and just dance around and, and, and run around? It'd be fun. It'd be exciting. It'd be emotionally uplifting. But does God's word give us such instructions? Why do we pray? Why do we sit and listen to one person preach? That's not cool these days, just so you know. Why do we do these things? Because God's word tells us to do these things. It's what 
what Baptists and Christians have believed is so it's called the regulative principle of worship. That is, we don't worship God. We don't approach God in any old way. God doesn't leave to human wisdom how to, he wants to be worshipped. God is a holy God. And he cares how he wants to be worshipped. How do we know that? Because he told us in the Ten Commandments how he's to be worshipped. And we see countless examples over and over again in the Old Testament where where. People wanted to worship God the way they thought God wanted to be worshipped. So you see, you know, you see Aaron coming out. They come out of Egypt. Aaron wants to give praise and glory to God in honor and praise to his name. And what does he do? He builds a calf, a golden calf. He thinks, this is, this is, this is what I know. This is what I've seen. This is how we used to do it in Egypt. This, this, is how, this must be how God wants to be worshipped. Aaron wasn't trying to worship a false god. Aaron thought he was worshiping God the way, well, the way he thought he should be worshipped. Or, or, or Uzzah, when Uzzah was taking the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and he slipped. I mean, the guy just slipped. And he touched the Ark of the Covenant, and God killed him on the spot. Why? Because he told him not to. Do not touch the Ark of the Covenant. I care how I want to be approached. Do not just approach me any old-fashioned you want to approach me. I care about this. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, that's the same thing for us today. God informs how he wants to be worshipped. He tells us. He doesn't leave it to us sinful people to think of creative ways that to worship God. That's why we celebrate the Ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's why we regularly come and hear God's word preached. It's why we sing God's word. Why we pray God's word. This is what we do. Not because we thought it up or because Baptists have always done that or because Protestants have been doing it for 500 years. No, we do it because God's word tells us to do it and we don't do any more or less than that. The third warning. Warning number three. The ultimate idolatry of false religion. The ultimate idolatry of false religion. Jesus confronts these men in a very stern and slightly sarcastic way to subtly reveal their idolatrous hearts. First, notice in verse 8 how they've supplemented the word of God. Notice how they supplement God's word. You leave the commandments of God and hold the traditions of men. The the road to false religion starts with a supplementing of God's word. When we begin to supplement God's word, you know, like... You probably took this morning those supplements because you don't eat healthy and right. You don't, you don't eat your vegetables like you're supposed to, so you pop those little multivitamin, you know, because we're Americans and we just we don't know how to eat, right? So we, we supplement good food with little pills. Well, any doctor will tell you those little pills, eventually your body re- doesn't do anything with those things anymore. You can pop many of those you want, but it doesn't do anything. Right? You need the real thing. Nothing, nothing can supplement the real thing. And what they were doing is they were supplementing the word of God. They were adding to, excuse me, the word of God. 
They, they were putting on things to the word of God. They they're they saying, okay, God's word's good. It's, it's good. But it's just not enough. It's not sufficient. They were undermining the sufficiency of God's word to inform and direct their lives. Is that not idolatry to say, God, you just really haven't done a good job in What arrogance when we say we have to add to the word of God to make it more glorious or more effective. We've got to put on this little show to attract people because God's word just doesn't do it anymore in this culture, in this day of age. Oh, friends, brothers and sisters, God's word does not need our human ingenuity added to it. Brothers and sisters, this is the slow creep of the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't start by saying, hey, you know what, we're just going to throw the Bible away. We're going to do all these crazy things. It was a slow and subtle supplementing of God's Word. And ultimately, an abandonment. Supplementing God's word. You, you leave this and you hold to this. Jesus is saying, look, you, you left that and you're holding to this. Notice the progressiveness of it. You, you've, you've just said nope to that and yes to this. And that's what we do in our lives. Secondly, we see that they take their words and make them equal with God's word. First they supplement them and then when supplement, supplementing doesn't work anymore, not effective anymore. They begin to they begin to elevate their word. Look in verse nine, and Jesus said, "You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition." See what re, this is scary stuff here. Rejecting you have you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God to establish, you're rejecting and establishing. I like the way the New English translation translates. He says, you have a real neat way of doing this. That's what the New English translation, I th- it really does capture, doesn't it? S- the sarcasm of Jesus here. You're, you are pros at this. You are professional manipulators of the word of God. Brothers and sisters, so can we. We can have some pretty creative ways of manipulating God's word. We we can come up with some pretty neat ways of elevating our tradition to the level of God's word. And then ultimately submitting God's word to our traditions. To our, well, we've just always done it that way and so we're going to continue to do it that way without really thinking what we're doing is that we are leaving God's word behind and embracing our word. But I want you to see the active posture here. They are actively rejecting God's word. You may not have thought about it that way. That when you hold tradition equal to the word of God, you're actually rejecting God's word. This is what the Protestant, this is what Martin Luther and and Zwingli and Calvin were fighting the Catholic Church about. They said, you are elevating tradition, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, to the equal status of the Word of God, and thus rejecting the Word of God. And so does the Church of Rome today. 
Second Vatican didn't change their position on those things. They still reject God's word and the infallibility of the Pope. How can you say one man's words are equal with God's words? You can't. And so, the Reformation isn't over, is it? We press on. Thirdly, we see Jesus confronting them in the third way is that they honor their words over God's word. The, 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 the end game of religiosity and traditionalism is to ultimately worship self rather than God. To worship man over God. When we follow the words of men rather than the word of God, we are worshiping those men or women or whoever wrote the tradition. Rather than going to God's word and saying, how is my life to be informed by the word of God, I go to men, preachers or teachers. This is why we give ourselves weekly to the regular preaching of God's word expositional preaching, meaning that all I'm doing right now is showing you what the Bible says and not what I'm saying. Or as B did last week. Or Steve has done. Showing God's word. This is what it says. Believe it. Give your life to it. Trust it. It's true. He tells us in verse 10 what they were doing. Many things they were doing, but this is one that Jesus highlights to demonstrate their worship of self rather than God. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now to be clear, who really said that? Was it Moses? No, it was God. But that's a a normal way to talk about the, the law. Moses said it, but but we understand God was the one who gave Moses the words to say. Notice if one reviles what ultimately happens, they must surely die. So so that's the command of God. That's the word of God. Then notice the contrast in verse 11. But you say. It's emphatic. Jesus says, but you, 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 you all say this. God says this. You say that. Wouldn't want to be them arrogance in their own words oh we know God said to honor our parents we, we, we don't doubt that we know that we memorize that we've got that hanging up at the wall at home we know that but but there's this over here there's this over here and, and this over here is really important to us so what they were doing, what were they doing? If, you, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Basically what they were doing was this. People would come to them, and their culture, when your mom and dad became older and not able to work, you provided for them, you took care of them. Uh, you, you, you maybe housed them or provided a home for them, you provided food for them, you you know, you don't just you didn't just usher them off into a nursing home and forget about them. 
you actually cared about them, that you honored their life by bringing, you honored their, their, their care of you by caring for them in their older age. So they gave themselves to that. And it's a, it's a totally different culture. And so for us, we might hear this and be like, well, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, there's nothing wrong with nursing homes. There's nothing wrong with those things. I mean, clearly God's word isn't saying those things are wrong. So what's going on here? What's happening here? Well, what's happening is, is they were trying to find a loophole in the Word of God. And they found one. Corbin, that is, given to God. He said, it's an offering. I've given it up as an offering, and I've given it to God, and so, you know, I, I, I can't do anything about it anymore. I've given it over to God, and so, unfortunately, you know, I can't help you. I can't care for you. That was their tradition. And they let people do this. They let people out of caring for their families and their moms and dads. They, they did this. And Jesus is like, what, what are you doing? You thus make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. This emphasis here of you, you, you. They were trying to have a relationship with God without submitting to the word of God. And friends, we do the same thing. We try to have a relationship with God without, without going to God's word and saying, well, how is that relationship to be had? Through activity, through doing things, being good, loving, all those things that we, we come up with, these lists that we have? No. Friends, trying to have a relationship with God without submitting to the Word of God, it's like trying to build a house without blueprints. I mean, you might put it together, but if you invite me over, I'm not coming. <laughs> I, I'm just not coming over. right? You, you might have what looks like a house, but... I don't know. I mean, did you follow? I mean, did you follow the? No, you didn't have one. You just kind of did it however you thought was best. Friends, that was what we do with God when we come and approach Him in ways that are not informed by His Word. And so the question is how much of your daily life, your daily activities, are informed by God's Word? How often do you go to God's word and see his will revealed? I remember as a young young high schooler, even perhaps even in middle school, the, the big rage was, you know, in church, you know, trying to find the will of God for my life. What's God's will for my life? As if I was going to have some sort of uh, spiritual moment in the, on the mountain and God was just going to speak to me. Sadly, nobody said, well, just go read the Bible and you'll see God's will revealed. <laughs> That's what we do, though. We wander around trying to figure out how to live our lives when he spelled it out right here in his word. When's the last time you just opened God's word and read it? Heard from, from God. God is not still speaking through prophets and revelation of churches that have abandoned God's word. And you can go down the street and that's what they'll tell you. God still speaks. Why? Why do they say that? Why do they say God still speaks? Because they're rejecting what God said. Rejecting that God has said some things very clearly and definitively. We can do the same thing. 
when we don't regularly go to the God's word and, and hear from our eternal God? What are we adding to Christianity? What, what are we doing as a congregation? Maybe not, not, not actively, not an active posture, but passively. You've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you need, to, you need to get rid of that, and, you know, oh, no, not that. Jesus says, all who come to me, come, doesn't he? Just put qualifiers on everything. Go clean yourself up. Get your life straightened out. Then you come to me, and everything will be. No, he doesn't say that. But we can act like that. We can, we, 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 can, we can position ourselves in a way in people's lives where we look down on them because of maybe the way they live their life and thus hinder them from hearing the gospel. So if you're not a Christian today, I'm going to tell you something. God's word tells us that the way to have a relationship with him is through his son. You see, the Bible says that we are all created by God. And God created us holy and perfect like him, but Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They, they were God's first creation. They rebelled against God and living life their own way. And because of their sinful rebellion, God condemned them. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So we're dead men and women unless God does something to intervene. We're all condemned to an eternal hell unless God does something. And he did do something. God sent his son. That's himself. To die as a sacrifice for our sins. He died in our place for our sin so that all those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ would be saved. And the proof that all of that is true that Jesus died and rose again in three days. And he's alive today. If you just repent and turn from your way of living and turn to Christ, you too can be saved. Not by good works. Not by religion or tradition. But by the death of God's own son. False religion is a game of addition and subtraction from God's word. Don't play that game. Submit to God's word. In the end, religion leads to prideful, selfish attempt to earn God's favor. God's favor cannot be earned. His love cannot be earned. His love was displayed in giving his own son for our sins. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God of the universe, we come to you today recognizing our own sin and recognizing our need for a Savior. And Father, I just pray this morning that that these warnings that we have seen in your word would open our eyes to perhaps our own traditions as a church or as individuals that run against your word, that are counter to your word, that actually undermine your word. Father, I pray that by your spirit that you would teach, reveal, and seal our hearts. For your glory and our eternal good we pray. In Christ's name, amen.